Welcome to Nectar, Dangerous Ideas in Drug Development, podcast number four. Um, as usual, I'm Anthony Joshua. I am a medical oncologist at the Kinghorn Cancer Center in Sydney and do drug development, genitourinary and skin malignancies. Um, Nectar is an organization, for those of you familiar with the podcast, that is tasked with getting patients to clinical trials, as well as attracting pharmaceutical companies and biotech companies into the state of New South Wales and Australia to carry out clinical trials. Now, today, I'm very um, happy to be joined by one of my partners in crime, Dr. Jenny Liu, who also works with me at the Kinghorn Cancer Centre. So I will hand over to Jenny to introduce herself. Thanks, Anthony. Um, very pleased to be here and excited to hear from our um, uh, guest today. So I'm a medical oncologist and translational lead of the phase one unit at the Kinghorn Cancer Centre. Alongside drug development, I also treat patients with head and neck cancer and skin cancers. And I've got an interest in biomarkers allowing us to improve uh, efficacy of patients on trials. And I've done my PhD some 10 years ago on epigenetics and currently have collaborations with a large proteomics group over at the Children's Medical Research Institute. Great. Um, so before we continue and hand over to um, our guest today, we do have to do a disclosure statement. Um, so just to disclose that the Kinghorn Centre, Cancer Centre, under the auspices of St Vincent's Hospital Sydney, is engaged with clinical trials uh, with Grey Wolf Therapeutics at, at an institutional level. I do not have any personal disclosures to make with Grey Wolf um, and Jenny. Yes, likewise, no personal disclosures either. All right. So before we hand over to Tom from Grey Wolf, again, just to reiterate to the listeners, if you have any um, anything we can assist with in terms of Nectar, feel free to email us on trials at nectar.org.au um, in terms of getting involved with biotech or helping patients get to clinical trials. Uh, very happy to help. So uh, it is our, an honor today to um, have with us uh, Tom Lilly from Grey Wolf Therapeutics. Uh, Tom, over to you to introduce yourself and, and tell us a bit about where you've been and, and obviously also the Grey Wolf journey. Well, thank you so much. Real pleasure to join you on the Nectar podcast. And I, I guess we could say that Grey Wolf is a success story for Nectar since we are, we are running trials in, in New South Wales and Australia more broadly. And great to be partnering with you at your centres and patients in doing that. So I revel in the title of the Chief Medical Officer at Grey Wolf Therapeutics. Uh, I've been there now just about four or five months uh, I started my career actually as a surgical oncologist of all places. So I'm an, an unusual beast that I started in surgery, but ended up really now at the medical oncology end of things and drug development. Uh, I will say that uh, I, I had to drop out of medical school to do my PhD for a while. We didn't have MD PhDs back in those days. So I started medicine at Oxford, then went and did a PhD at UCL. And I was very interested in second messengers and G-protein signaling. Uh, so that was my kind of area of interest, that and the uh, immune system has always been part of my research interests uh, and then really went into oncology as a, a clinical specialty and spent uh, a, a good number of years doing that within the NHS uh, and then moved out into industry in drug development. Uh, and I've spent most of my career in oncology drug development. I think that's now frighteningly heading towards about 25 years of drug development, everything from phase one through to phase four. 
uh, and a few things in between. And I've worked for some some big companies like Amgen, uh, which was a wonderful place to work, actually. I, I really thoroughly enjoyed that. Uh, great time. That was a, an enormous amount of oncology drug development going on uh, in that company at the time. Uh, then into Merck Sharp and Dome or Merck and Co in America. And again, had the, the real privilege and excitement of working on pembrolizumab and a lot of other molecules uh, in development there with uh, with Merck. And then finally, I've moved finally into into small companies, uh, firstly in the oncolytic virus space, but most recently Grey Wolf, where we are looking at ERAP, uh, um, endoplasmic reticulum aminopeptidase inhibition. Uh, and uh, I'll be happy to talk a little bit more about that and uh, what we're up to. But that's that's kind of how I got where where I am, which is through a circuitous route, but uh, been thoroughly enjoyable and very much engaged in drug development now. So uh, ERAP uh, is an important part of uh, antigen presentation. I think everyone will be very familiar with the idea that the, the proteasome chops up uh, proteins within all of our cells. Uh, and then creates a, a peptide library, so to speak. And that peptide library is then trimmed uh, by a couple of, of ERAP enzymes. Not the whole library, it's about 30% of the peptides that are generated by you or I or anybody else are trimmed by, by ERAP. Uh, and what ERAP1 does in particular is, is shorten longer peptides, 10, 11, 12, 13s, down to nine-mers. So ERAP1's specialty, if you like, in antigen processing is producing nine-mers. Uh, in terms of, of peptide length. There's also ERAP2, which uh, works slightly differently again, but it, it, these are both trimming mechanisms, which uh, a kind of evolutionary perspective are there to try and optimize the way that peptides are presented on the HLA. So about 30% of the peptides that we, we generate are processed by, by ERAP, uh, and then those peptides, of course, bind to MHC1 and then make it out onto the cell surface, where, of course, they're surveil, uh, surveilled, surveilled, is that a word? Surveyed, perhaps, uh, by T cells looking for uh, uh, you know new antigens, changes to the cell protein repertoire, which then, of course, would trigger an immune reaction. So I think the, the exciting thing that we're up to is huge amount of excitement and progress in immunotherapy in oncology over the last few years. That has largely, in recent times, focused around signal two. So again, I'm sure you'll remember that there are kind of three signal components to an immune response. Signal one is, is antigen presentation to the T cell receptor or, uh, or other receptors in terms of NK cells. Uh, then there's signal two, which is the sort of checkpoint story and the second stimuli that are applied alongside the antigen and, and T cell receptor signal. And then finally, signal three, which is the cytokine uh, boost that then occurs in order to get the T cells activated and uh, attacking things or B cells producing antibodies or whatever the immune response is. And so we've had a lot of activity in drug development in signal two. Uh, the anti-PD-1s being the, the classic example, but CTLA-4 would be another, and there are plenty of others in development, which I'm sure Anthony will be the subject of, uh, of future Nectar podcasts. Uh, we've had some success with Signal 3, although to be fair, I think it's been pretty tricky to turn cytokines into therapeutics. Of course, IL-2, one of the oldest therapeutics for interferon, gamma and alpha also have been, have been used as therapeutics, but uh, their therapeutic index isn't great. Toxicity is, is, is pretty High and again, it's just been it's been tricky to develop other cytokines. So signal three again, still very interesting, uh, and then signal one actually on the T cell side, of course, we've had quite a lot of success in drug development in signal one, with CAR T cells or T cell receptor engineering or even bispecifics. All of these are ways that we've been able to engineer 
uh, different T-cell engagers, but actually nobody's done anything on the other end of signal one yet to date in terms of actually changing antigen uh, presentation on the target tumor cells. So that's where we have this unique interest. And as, as far as we're aware, we're the first in class to have an ERAP inhibitor. And so we have a, a very nice small molecule inhibitor of ERAP1. We do also, in fact, have a, a, an inhibitor of ERAP2 under development, but that's much, much earlier, still uh, still in basic research and, uh, and uh, development. But uh, our ERAP1 program is, is just made it into phase one, again, uh, along with uh, Anthony and, and Jenny at Kinghorn. Uh, and it's a, it's a really nice molecule. We developed that through some very nice structurally enabled biology. So we we have the crystal structure and the ability to, to look at molecules within ERAP1. And what we discovered during that process was that there is in fact an allosteric site on the ERAP1 molecule. So we have a really nice clean small molecule because it binds to the allosteric site, not to the enzymatic site. So in terms of inhibiting other enzymes there's really almost zero activity which is a really nice start uh, place to start in terms of preclinical safety uh, and actually a very nice clean profile in terms of animal toxicity as well which um which has meant we can get into into humans uh, in terms of phase one testing uh, pretty rapidly uh, and uh, with a you know preclinical tox package that really looks looks nice and clean so we have this inhibitor it's uh, very potent down in the single digit nanomolar in terms of both the KD and uh, IC50s. So again, a potent specific inhibitor of your um, and it's orally available. So again, uh, always nice to have a, an orally available medicine that we can then give to patients in a capsule or tablet format. Uh, and so again, that's what we've got with uh, Grey Wolf 5769, which is our, our molecule, which is in the clinic now. So what else to say about, about ERAP inhibition? So we've done a, a lot of preclinical work and perhaps it would be worthwhile my just going through that, Anthony, and just saying here's sort of the, the reasons we believe this, this could be exciting in humans. Is that a good place to go next? Oh yeah, definitely, yeah, definitely. Wonderful. So there are a number of ways you can in, interrogate this. We've done a lot of work um, in, in human cancer cell lines, of course. And, and again, most of these experiments have been repeated many times across many different tumor types. So one of the things that's also very nice about ERAP uh, inhibition as a, as a mechanism is that it, it's broadly applicable again across many different tumor types. So we've looked in colorectal, uh, cervical, prostate, melanoma, breast. I think there are a good few other cell lines too, but we've very broadly got these same results. And what happens when you, when you inhibit ERAP in these cell lines is that we're able to see a shift in the immunopeptidome that is, is presented. And one of the major ways that we can do that is, is through mass spectrometry, so immunopeptidomics. And in fact, another link up with Australia, we've been working very uh, broadly with Tony Purcell at Monash. Uh, and again, so we are actually able to extract the peptides off MHC1 and look at the species and you can, species of peptide bound to MHC1. So it's a, a really nice mechanism and, and we can interrogate both the actual sequence of peptides which are bound so we can see if, if there are different peptide species binding and we can also of course interrogate the length and as I told you ERAP trims are down to nine and so one of the principal things we see when we inhi inhibit ERAP is a shift in the species of peptide from a dominant nine phenotype and we see the, the curve shift right to 10, 11, 12 mers. Uh, and in fact, that shift happens remarkably quickly. When I when I joined Grey Wolf, I was surprised to find that uh, really within 
a couple of hours of EVAP inhibition, the peptide uh, peptide spectrum shifts across both in the types of peptides and the length of peptides. So in fact, we do see both of those things shift. We see species uh, of peptide that were previously rare to be presented on the cell surface increase, species that were previously commonly expressed decrease, and we see a length shift. So we can measure, we can measure all of these things with immunopeptidomics, the length change, the spectrum of, of peptide length, we can measure which species, so the particular actual sequences of peptides and peptides that were previously not common becoming very common, peptides that were previously uh, very common becoming uncommon. So uh, a frequency shift as well as a length shift. So we can interrogate that with immunopeptidomics. Of course, the, the very best things for scanning immunopeptidomics are T cells. So we can also actually scan uh, with particular T cell clones for particular peptides. So a lot of work has gone on and we, we have assays where we have uh, a particular peptide, synfecal would be one that springs to mind, which is actually a peptide which comes from ovalbumin. And there is a known T cell clone which responds to that synfecal peptide bound to MHC1. And so you get the idea that you can have a very specific assay to see whether that peptide is upregulated or downregulated. And so we, we can use that to show ERAP inhibition occurs as well. That requires ERAP processing to uh, the synfecal peptide to be presented. So when you have ERAP present, uh, ERAP inhibition present, then that synfecal peptide is not presented. And of course, then the T cells uh, won't kill. Uh, cells uh, with uh, with the urapinosin presence. So we've got a range of assays, uh, and we have shown very convincingly across many, many different human cell lines, that's exactly what happens with the ERAP inhibition. We see shifts in the peptide length, shifts in the peptide species, both increases and decreases. Uh, and again, we can actually interrogate directly some of those, what are those peptides? Uh, and when we look in particular cell lines where we know what the neoantigens are, we can actually see that we have those uh, different peptides from those neoantigens being presented. And again, that we can then engage different T cells following ERAP inhibition than when we didn't have ERAP inhibition. Can I ask, just I'm thinking outside the box here, what about autoimmune disease? So I don't know enough about autoimmune autoimmunity, but presumably there are some endogenous peptides presented. And uh, if that's pre prevented, uh, there's that interesting paper about yep. ankylosing spondylitis and how that exactly. happens. Um, then they may have an application for autoimmune disease, paradoxically. Yes, you're you're absolutely right. So we 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 do have a a, a sort of background interest in autoimmunity. We we've started on in oncology just because of the the new antigen story. But you're absolutely right that you could do the reverse. You could stop the presentation of problematic self peptides and, and change that spectrum of peptide presentation. So yes, we do also have an interest. In autoimmunity, as you say, ankylosing spondylitis is certainly a classic. But I, again, I think there are a, a wide spectrum of, of, of uh, diseases, you know, uh, from a psoriasis onwards, where one could imagine that this would be uh, this would be something that you, you could modulate using an ERAP type inhibition. So, yes, you're absolutely right. We are also interested in that. Yeah, and I guess um, following on from the story with neoantigens, and we've had some discussions about this, so there are increasing populations of virally-driven cancers in the head and neck space. We're seeing a, a great reduction in smoking and alcohol-related cancers, but uh, really an epidemic of HPV-related cancers. Um, do you want to speak a bit to these types of cancers and our, our interest on the trial? Yeah, absolutely. No, that's um, that that is definitely the next part of the story. So that's that's a great lead in, Jenny. So absolutely right. So we we look generally at, at cancer antigen presentation, and, and we're pretty pretty certain that 
uh, one of the ways that that cancers can in fact end up hiding neoantigens is, is through ERAP processing. Um, and again, just before we get onto the virus-driven cancers, just to say we, we've spent quite a lot of time uh, looking at the, the TCGA, the, the Cancer Genome Atlas, and I've been able to show some very nice associations between ERAP expression levels and uh, cancer outcomes, tumor outcomes in that when we compare. Uh, and we see that in many, many cancers, actually ERAP is upregulated. So just to sort of think through that, what that means is that the cancer appears to be getting some sort of advantage in terms of, of growth potential by actually having a higher expression of ERAP, which suggests that ERAP trimming uh, is in fact a way of hiding neoantigens from the immune system. So then fast forwarding that, uh, and really uh, one of our main avenues of, of uh, research and sort of excitement around this is, as you say, the viral cancers, because that exact same story ab about ERAP levels is, is true within viral cancer. So if we look at cervical cancer and HPV or head and neck cancer, and again, of course, HPV, though, of course, EBV and nasopharyngeal also of interest. So Epstein-Barr virus, uh, again, of course, a, a potent cause of, of EBV in, in many parts of the world. Uh, and actually with the hepatitis, hepatitis B and C and the hepatocellular carcinoma, again, uh, pretty major problems in, in, in broad parts of, of the world. But what you see in all of those cases is that in, in uh, tumors, in patients who have those tumors, within the tumor, ERAP expression is actually upregulated. So again, the same story that, that particularly virally driven tumors appear to use ERAP as a way of actually hiding these antigens from being presented. And in fact, uh, some very nice work done in, in cervical cancer shows that in the earlier stages, so ca uh, cancer neoplasia in situ, CIN1 through to four, the level of ERAP expression goes up as one goes higher up the CIN scores and then to frank cervical neoplasia, where in fact it's at its highest level. So that has led us to the idea that, as you say, Jenny, within, within our phase one program, we're particularly interested in having patients uh, enroll in the study who have uh, HPV-driven or uh, hepatitis B or C-driven or, or indeed EBV-driven tumors, uh, and then obviously wanting to look at uh, whether or not we can, by modulating ERAP down again with ERAP inhibition, whether we can expose those viral neoantigens and thereby, of course, try and trigger uh, an immune response to those uh, virally driven cancers. So, so broadly, we think ERAP is, is a way that many cancers are hiding the neoantigens, but very specifically, these virally driven tumors look like a, a sort of a, a, a beautiful case in point of, of where this may be particularly finely balanced. And we might be able to tip the balance in favor of cancer therapy by exposing these new antigens with ERAP inhibition. Yeah, one of the problems we've seen with our immuno-oncology drugs in the clinic is combination immunotherapy is often associated with synergistic toxicity. Do you anticipate that when we are adding this to other immunotherapy agents, you will get increased immune uh, toxicity or not? Yeah, it's, a, it's an interesting question and of, of course, as always in phase one research, the, the 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 proof of the pudding is 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 definitely in the what what we see clinically. I think we feel though pretty optimistic that it, that it's unlikely. I mean, in and of itself, just changing the immunopeptidome uh, shouldn't particularly be a cause of of uh, of problems. And the reason I say that is because back to Anthony's autoimmune point, um, you could think about whether you know would, would there be some some self. Uh, antigens that you might present if you if you had ERAP inhibition. What's what's become apparent or is becoming apparent because actually immunopeptidomics is a 
a field that is changing rapidly and we're, we're learning a lot. And, and the, again, it's another uh, immunopeptidomics because of the mass spec technology changes uh, really pretty frequently. Of course, we're, we're getting better and better, higher and higher sensitivity. But, it, but as we do that in, in mass spec uh, analyses, what's becoming clear is that in, that in fact, there is probably a very low expression of, of all of these peptides all of the time. And with EVAP inhibition, we are shifting the frequency of that. But in fact, we're probably not changing the overall repertoire. We are just changing the frequencies. So there may be some peptides which are presented, which are extremely low frequencies in the natural state. But when we ERAP inhibit, those become higher. So we think actually in terms of exposing self, that's probably a pretty low risk with this uh, with this molecule. So again, we'll, we're obviously we're, we're working with uh, wonderful patients who are volunteering to, to come and join in the trials. Um, but yeah, we, we don't feel a lot of concern around that. And then, of course, you know, obviously we could see, um, you know, an improved immune response. And I guess if uh, if you, you know, in combination with PD-1, we would hope that the, the toxicity profile of an anti-PD-1 with uh, an EMAP inhibitor would probably be pretty same to a, an anti-PD-1 on its own. We're just trying to help the immune system make a, a normal response. So unlike other immune therapies, uh, I don't know, like a, a CAR T or somewhere else where we've got a, a, we're supercharging the T cell response, we're actually just trying to generate a physiologic T cell response. We have, we're not engineering the T cells, we're not boosting the T cell responses in and of themselves. We're just trying to go down the normal physiologic route of presenting a new antigen to the T cell, the T cell making an immune response. Uh, and we would hope that that would therefore be uh, you know, a, a pretty physiological process. Of, of course, when you make a, a, an immune response, you, you can get some side effects from that. So I guess we'd expect to maybe see that. But I, I don't see an, a sort of an a priori reason why the combination would be would be more toxic than, than say, anti-PD-1 on its own. So on that note, uh, in terms of PD-1, I mean, certainly there is some data that MHC gets downregulated in PD-1-resistant tumours. Uh, have you seen anything preclinically in terms of the dependency on ERAP inhibition with uh, some homeostatic level of MHC presumably is needed, uh, plus or minus checkpoint uh, co-stimulatory molecules? Yeah, no, that's 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 another really, really good uh, sort of point, Anthony. So what's one of the things that we're, we're trying to do with ERAP inhibitors. So obviously, we've talked a lot about the, the process of being able to perhaps expose new new antigens. I think the, the flip side of this is that actually we can turn ERAP inhibition on and off with this molecule. So we can take the ERAP inhibitor away and allow the immunopeptone to flip back, which it does, as I mentioned earlier, very quickly within a matter of hours. And it will flip back to exactly the same as it was before the inhibition. So within any given individual, that the peptide population that's displayed is, is very stable. Uh, in fact, uh, the immunopeptidomics lab can absolutely know with patient samples who's has uh, uh, arrived just because the spectrum of peptides of that individual is, is almost like a fingerprint. So you can absolutely tell. And it, it flips back and forwards with the rep inhibition um, back to its natural state. So I think one of the things we're, we're hoping we'll be able to avoid is this by chronic presentation of antigens, which might lead to selection of uh, downregulated MHC. So we, we could just turn that on and off and thereby try and avoid that. Uh, and possibly just as importantly, we're also, of course, very interested in the phenomenon of T cell exhaustion and the idea that chronic presentation of cancer antigens leads to T cell exhaustion. And so again, we think with this idea of having EREP emission on and off, we can avoid exhaustion as well. 
Uh, obviously, you're right that from a, a PD-1 point of view, we do see MHC downregulation. Of course, tumours can't follow that path infinitely because it, once you have no MHC, you're exposed to natural killer cells. So tumours have always got to strike some balance between the two. But uh, we think probably using at the moment in the trial, we're using two weeks on, one week off uh, in order to have this on and off phenomenon and avoid exhaustion. But that should also stop uh, or at least lower the risk of us having selection for lower MHC expression because you've got these off periods where you're back to the same presentation as before, which clearly the, the immune system wasn't recognizing. So I think this on off idea is probably hopefully good for both avoiding T cell exhaustion, but hopefully also for avoiding uh, selection of MHC down regulation as a, as a way of escaping. Great. It's really interesting and very timely given we're actually dosing a patient cycle one day one today in our unit. Um, I, I see in your pipeline, you've got a few other ERAP uh, one and two inhibitors in the works. Can you talk a bit about where you think they will be heading? Sure. Um, yeah. So I, I guess like all companies, we, we, we do have a, a backup around ERAP one, another very nice molecule. It, it's it, it's in its infancy, um, just just still in the sort of chemistry phase. Uh, but that's uh, obviously just to uh, you always like to have two at least two shots on goal when you're you're pursuing these sort of targets. So uh, that's a lot of work going on to that. Again, as I mentioned earlier, we we do have an ERAP two inhibitor. ERAP one and ERAP two do complementary things to the peptide profile. So we think there's good reason to believe that. Uh, as a mechanism, it's quite possible that ERAP1 and ERAP2 uh, will be complementary or even perhaps synergistic in terms of being able to even, even further broaden the changes in an immunopeptome that we can effect. Um, and uh, the ERAP1 and ERAP2 molecules, the actual enzymes are different enough that they require quite different inhibitors. Um, there's there's not a huge amount of overlap. I mean, our, our ERAP1 inhibitor we currently have in clinic, the Grey Wolf 5769 is very specific for ERAP1. And I don't think I said it earlier, and it really has very little effect on ERAP2, uh, many, many orders of magnitude different. So, so effectively, it is a, a pure ERAP1 inhibitor. Uh, and thus, we are also developing a, a sort of very pure ERAP2 inhibitor as well. So that's that will come along in due course. And we think those two may work, uh, could work together. The, the third piece we're really interested in, which is, again, still ERAP inhibition, but there is a different way of, of looking at this. So we're at the moment very much focused on changing antigen presentation to the, the native T cell population. Uh, but uh, if you think through this a little bit further, of course, we, we have many very elegant ways now of engineering the T cell side or, or indeed the NK cell side. If you, if you looked at the non-classical MHC pathways, non-canonical. Non so um, what we could do there is you can, of course, map various peptides to t-cell receptor so you can you can establish the, the unique relationship between t-cell receptor and the peptide mhc complex as we scan the immunopeptidome with our erap inhibitors we are able to pick up unique uh, cancer antigen or viral antigen or, or all sorts of other antigens if, if you wished um, peptides which in fact in, if we were sort of starting to think about working with companies who do uh, t-cell receptor therapies or car t therapies who could then in fact design a T cell receptor against that very specific peptide. And so you could produce um, you know, very tightly matched ability to have an antigen that's only expressed uh, on, a, on a cancer uh, during ERAP inhibition, and then have a, a CAR T or a T cell receptor or a, a bispecific that only binds to that particular peptide, which isn't there 
when there's no ERAP inhibition and then appears with ERAP inhibition. And you can even take that thought a step further and think about vaccinating uh, to that unique peptide when it's not present yet on the cancer because you're not in the presence of ERAP inhibition. Prime the immune system to, to recognize that and then add in the ERAP inhibition and that peptide suddenly becomes apparent on the surface of cancer cells. Uh, and you can then pursue it with these therapies. So there's there's a whole bunch of other really exciting, interesting work that we're looking to do in these sort of MHC1 directed therapy space, where we believe there's a, a really nice opportunity to put together unique ERAP um, exposed uh, peptides and then a matching T-cell therapy or TCR therapy or whatever the therapy is that can then identify that. So that's a third strand still based around ERAP inhibition, but a, a different way of thinking about it rather than trying to stimulate the endogenous immune system, actually thinking about exogenous T-cell type therapies, which we can match to these unique peptides that we're exposing with ERAP inhibition. So can you actually track that? Are you seeing this uh, like a signature, if you like, of ERAP inhibition where you can predict uh the... yeah that that's that, that's exactly where we're trying to, to head in fact it was on one of your earlier podcasts i was listening to and um a company that's been spending a lot of time mapping the immunopeptidome from the t-cell receptor space i i believe if i if i understood the the podcast correctly and and so you each, each person does have a quite specific peptide library of which of course there are commonalities between some folk and it, it'll depend on your particular HLA haplotypes and, and et cetera, et cetera. So there's variability, but yes, there does for any given individual, there appears to be a spectrum and, and for any given cancer, there appear to be unique peptides that will appear. So we are, we are starting to explore that library, so to speak, where we can find common peptides, which are seen across many different uh, individuals, many different uh, cancer types, and then design specific T-cell therapies with, in conjunction with other companies who are experts at that. We, we certainly aren't experts at that. But you can see a very nice sort of lock and key type phenomenon where we would have specific uh, reproducible, commonly seen cancer antigens, which uh, we'd know the peptide sequence for that. And of course, you could then pair that with a, a unique T-cell solution or T-cell receptor solution to 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 uh, bind and attack to that MHC and peptide um, complex. It's fascinating and um, uh, to me uh, in terms of how we, you know, th th the strategies here, it's, it's, it seems like it's um, certainly one of the more inventive ways of augmenting the immune response that that, that has come out of a biotech, um, uh, I must say. Um, do you, uh, can you talk about, I guess, um, uh, with the current trial, what uh, information is publicly available? I, mean, I guess in terms of the current trial, in terms of the timelines or other agents you're adding in uh, or expansion cohorts, is there what are you free to um, tell the listeners? Yeah, no, the, obviously the, the the trials all listed listed publicly, and um, that's uh, yeah, all, all going along. And in, and in fact, hot hot off the press, we just received our, our approval in Spain actually to to start the study there. So we we're already open in in Australia, which is great, and Spain will be joining us soon. The, the study is a you know reasonably classical phase one dose escalation. So we're, we're obviously monotherapy to start with, uh, and then we do already have built-in combination dose escalation uh, with uh, with simiplumab as a uh, anti PD one. Uh, so that will that will that dose escalation will start hopefully uh, sometime into early next year. We would hope. We'll see how the data goes. So we, we do have combination as well as monotherapy dose escalation built into the current study. 
the EMIT-1 study. Uh, and then we will go from there into, as you say, some expansion cohorts. We're still talking uh, with uh, experts such as yourself, but others across the world that we're, we're engaged with about where the best place to head. I think at the moment we do feel the biology around the virally driven cancers is, is particularly persuasive. Uh, and there's there's really a, a pretty big, pretty big published um, repertoire of, of, of experiments, both preclinical and clinical and, and various genomic analyses from uh, human cancer samples and trials that really does validate this as, as being a, a, a nice uh, approach. And, and of course, that essentially would give us a, a biomarker. And so the idea that, for instance, one might do uh, perhaps a virally driven cancer basket trial uh, and just look at whether that's that's broadly applicable. I think that would be a really interesting direction to go. Um, so th those are those are definitely directions we're we're thinking very carefully about. Um, and again, that will play out over the next next couple of years as we uh, as we recruit the cohorts into the study. Um, I guess a point about biomarkers, when we audit our own uh, outcomes within our phase one unit, if we are able to assign a patient to a biomarker match trial, the response rate is about three times higher than if it's an all-comer phase one patient to a phase one trial. And you spoke a bit about the TCGA data with ERAP1 expression. I'm not aware that ERAP1 is something that we test for routinely expression-wise that we're finding in our molecular reports. Uh, is that something that you think is worthwhile looking at as a potential biomarker or? Yeah, I um, I, I always remember somebody from a, a, um, a large diagnostics company and we, we were talking about biomarkers and as you say, the excitement about biomarkers and when, and when you find one that's, that's, that's valid, of course, as you say, your success rate goes up um, manyfold by by probably at least threefold, and so that that's really exciting. And, and so we were having this lovely conversation, and and he 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 turned to me and said something along the lines of, he said fi finding the biomarker, he said, is even more difficult than finding the the target in the first place. So we're we're certainly very keen to do it, yet also acknowledge that it, it's unfortunately rare that that our efforts to find the biomarkers work out as we as we'd hope. Um, and again, uh, you know, whilst we've got some fantastic examples of oncology of, of biomarkers that have worked out. I do always think back to the early days of EGFR inhibitors, and we were all very much obsessed with EGFR levels and whether they were high and whether they were low. And of course, in the end, that never really panned out as, as being a decent biomarker, even though implicitly from first principles, that seemed like a, a really good approach. And I, I think we're seeing in HER2 something a little bit similar, where actually there's a lot of benefit in even the HER2 low expression uh, patients with uh, some of the HER2 therapies. So it is it is interesting. Nevertheless, having said all that, we, we have got a really rich translational program within the trial. We're looking at ERAP, absolutely, as you say, so to see whether there is an association. There are 10 uh, ERAP haplotypes of ERAP1 in the human population. All, all of them are actually active. There, there isn't a sort of knockout, so to speak. There, there is a rare but, but does occur knockout in ERAP2 uh, or at least a very low activity. I probably shouldn't say knockout. It, it's just a very low activity haplotype in ERAP2. Um, but uh, ERAP1 doesn't have that. But it, there are 10 sorts of, of ERAP haplotype, all, all of which are, are pretty active. But we will measure those, uh, see what we can see. Uh, and again, beyond that, we're, we're also looking at HLA type. Of course, there's a, a profound interaction between your HLA haplotype uh, and the peptide repertoire that you present. And so again, we're looking at the HLA uh, haplotypes, and again, uh, with respect to the peptide populations from immunocapitidomics, 
We're looking at TCR repertoires. Uh, again, there are now very, very nice approaches where we can look at TCR repertoire and the change in TCR repertoire. And as we were saying earlier, again, quite amazingly to me, thinking about how far we've we've come in this space, that we we really can get down to the level of individual T cell clones and and their T cell receptor specificity, and actually uh, possibly get back to the actual peptide that that T cell clone is is responding to so with immunopeptidomics at the the peptide end of the translation scale and tcr repertoire and tcr sequencing at the other end uh, we actually hope we might be able to match those those two up um through the the, the wonders uh, of uh, of of data analysis and, and bioinformatics uh, and pull those two things together and then, of course, in one of the later cohorts, we're very much hoping to be able to get uh, tumor biopsies, paired biopsies from, from baseline and on treatment in patients who, are, who are hopefully will be willing to consent to do that. Um, and then again, we've got a spatial approach. So as you know, there's just, some, again, some amazing, really these days, almost down to single cell level spatial omics approaches we can apply. And of course, that applies both to the tumor uh, and looking at the, the various markers we might see change within the tumor. Uh, and then, of course, also the immune infiltrate into the tumor and looking at T cell repertoire, the expression of various cytokines. And again, just sort of popping back to our preclinical work. Uh, we've done a number of syngenetic mouse models, uh, again, mostly with colorectal, but, but also some other tumor types in terms of uh, xenograph models. And uh, there we see very beautifully with ERAP inhibition one uh, changes to the T cell repertoire. So we do see, uh, and again, in, in synergy with PD1 in those models. Uh, and very interestingly, when you put PD-1 into those mouse models, you see uh, obviously T cell responses and you see tumors shrink uh, in, in a proportion of the mice, but with a very, very select clonality, P PD-1 inhibition tends to select for a very small clonal population. In those, those mouse models, when we add ERAP and PD-1 together, we see an expansion of that clonality. So again, very nice evidence from that in, in vivo work in mice that we expand the T cell population. So we see enhanced response to PD-1 with ERAP inhibition and a much broader T cell uh, population being stimulated in that T cell population. Uh, going into the tumor, we see much higher levels of T cell infiltration. And back to the, the sort of translational piece, we also saw very nice T cell activation signatures within the tumor in those mouse models too. So again, we'd hope that through our translational work and these spatial omics approaches, and indeed for that matter, the, the spatial IHC, which again, now the, the number of different things one can look for in, in spatial IHC again, uh, is, is sorry, spatial, if, I should say fluorescence, immunofluorescence rather than just IHC, but the spatial IF um, is amazing. So yeah, we do have a, a huge suite of translational work that will will put to work both in bulk and, and down to really the single cell level. Uh, and then PBMCs, of course, again, a, a very rich source, both in the T, T cell receptor perspective, but, but also that's where we pull off our primary immunopeptidomics is, is from the PBMCs as well. So a lot of translational work, and, and we very much hope that whether it's the, the viral markers or ERAP or HLA uh, haplotypes or some other mark, we hope from out of that, we, we will be able to get some, some decent biomarkers we can apply uh, in phase 1B or phase 2. Well, on that very optimistic note, um, Tom, thank you very much for your time. Um, it, sounds, it's very, it sounds like a very exciting program, and I'm sure the listeners will be very keen to hear an update. We'll have to get you back next year for an encore presentation um, to see how this ERAP inhibition story is evolving. Um, but thank you very much for your time. Um, Jenny, any, any closing comments from you? 
Yes, it is true to say there was a recent analysis that for every new target, there are usually nine assets aimed at it across biotech. This is one of those few targets when, as far as I'm aware, there's only one um, one asset aimed at it. Yeah, no, I, I um, it, it's a homegrown program, and uh, I, I have to give a lot of kudos to, to Pete Joyce, who's uh, who's our CSO, but also our CEO. So he's the chief scientific officer and, and has really guided this through from the very earliest stages and has had an interest in this area for a long time, which is, uh, which is finally born through. So yes, uh, we are certainly the first in clinic and a, a pretty long way ahead as far as we know uh, of anybody else in this space. Um, yeah, so it is really exciting to be at this cutting edge. Um, and again, it, 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 to me, it's just been so exciting. You know, the field is moving very quickly. Immunopeptidomics is moving quickly. Uh, a lot of the ways we analyze these things are, are changing as we go along. And so it's just really nice from a, a scientific as well as a clinical viewpoint to be uh, sitting here on, on the cutting edge and, and learning so much as we go along. Uh, and again, just to say thank you to you two for your wonderful engagement as investigators. Um, and we're really, really grateful too to your, your fantastic patients who have agreed to be part of our trial. Always very wonderful, and I hope the dosing today goes uh, goes very smoothly. Great, well, thank you very much, uh, and uh, thank you, Ed, Jenny, as well. Um, thank you, everyone. We'll uh, be back for episode five shortly. Mm -hmm.